listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. So you guys have recently got into these infused gins and stuff out in your field cookery camp. I wouldn't call it recently, but, but yeah, no, it's, okay. been, it's been a few years now. We started dabbling yeah, yeah. recently, Went from a few years, d- dabbling into like a commercial product on the market, but mostly just dabbling in what I call camp gin. Yeah. It's been yeah. fun. We've learned a lot. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how you make it and what you put in and what your favorites are. And- well, the wrong way to make it is to bring an empty bottle and stick a bunch of botanicals in it, in the vodka. That's how I started. And there's two things wrong there. One is that the bottle's impossible to get the botanicals out of after. Uh, and two <laughs> is that um, vodka's not the best uh, medium to extract uh, the, the the volatiles into. So um, I've started doing it into Everclear and then diluting from there. So it happens really fast. So you can make gin kind of when you show up in camp um, in jars so you can get the stuff out. And then... Um, blend it kind of on the, on day two or even a few hours into day one. And then you've got gin to work with for the rest of your trip, which is fun. Yeah. Cool. Oh, cool. Yeah. And it kind of means that you're, I guess the, the, the fundamental premise is that you're drinking in camp, the flavors of that exact place, not just like of the boreal forest of like that exact camp, the tree, like that's right there. And the Labrador tea that you just stepped on. That's what you're, that's what you're drinking. Yeah. There's the gin, the gin tree just uh, outside the, the door to the tent. That's where the, we just take a few leaves every year and that's the gin tree. We see how he's tasting. We have one lodgepole <laughs> pine actually up by where we park our vehicles that is like the pine tree. It tastes the limiest. So we use that one. Oh, okay. Cool. Uh, okay. If you've never no, tasted I... trees before, that, that's a thing. Hank Shaw taught me that. Uh, they do taste quite different. And so it's worth, um, if you're going to target a species of tree to eat, you should probably taste a bunch of them in that area and then choose the one that you like the best. It's actually a, a thing. <laughs> Well, that makes sense because, as you guys know, you you can you you look at what wildlife feed on, and it's like that bush wasn't touched, that bush, and then that one is just like just bonsai shrub chewed down year after year, and you're like, that one must taste good. <laughs> There's uh-huh. that that's the only explanation I've got is they've done exactly that, and they're like, that's the shrub. Yep, don't yeah. blame them. We're becoming it's, like the wild animals that we hunt, Mark, you know? Okay. We're just, okay. We're becoming yeah. like them. We're finding the good patches. And then you find wildlife in those patches, which is weird too. Once you can, this is like kind of, we're just jumping right into level 11 instead of like level one and how it all began, which a lot of, a lot of conversations started, like, how did it begin? And um, we're sort of like, a, there's a ninja level when you're drinking uh, the environment and then you're seeing sort of what you're, what you're, what the game species might be eating. So uh, what I see in the forest uh, on a trip this spring and, and, and me just doing uh, surveillance trips around here for spring black pear, uh, I'm looking for different things than we had sort of seven or eight years ago when, when we were hunting, hunting bears seven or eight years ago. And, and the same for uh, whitetail last fall. Where, where we were picking uh, rose, we're seeing rose hips and looking for those, uh, scouting some new territory near uh, base camp at Rochester. Uh, we're, we're finding those bonsai shrubs, you know, like uh, on the quad trail, walking down this quad trail, no grazing. And like, there's no deer, there's no elk. And then a hundred meters uh, north of the, of the quad trail, there's a game trail and the shrubs are just chewed down like it's a major highway. No rose hips at all. 
uh, on the lakeshore, you know, those sorts of things. So you're like, okay, so animals are definitely here and they were, they would have been hidden from us before. We just sort of stuck to man-made trails and weren't looking for patterns in, in the, in the, the plant life. <laughs> yeah. So, so the gin exploits are definitely an asset for, for it all comes from a love of well. being drunk. Yeah. It comes from that <laughs> desire to be drunk. <laughs> so I saw one, I saw one on cameras on your website or one of your social medias. And it was like this bright, like red color, like almost like mm. cranberry juice. What was That's what it was? It was, it was viburnum. Oh, edula, uh, low bush cranberry. And, um, that would do it. Yeah. I mean, it, it was one of those, you know, moments I, Jeff and I've had a few of them over the years where you, you know, uh, especially in an area, it's frustrating when you're in an area that you've been a ton and then you stop to do something else and realize, holy crap, I'm surrounded by some species that's edible that we've just never even stopped to look at. Um, and this was that case where we were just, I don't even remember what we were doing. And there's this huge patch of low bush cranberry. So we just got to picking and Jeff picked a ton of it and uh, modeled it into a kind of a mock crantini. Yeah. I think it was a pretty a, lo- a low bush cantini and because <laughs> we were playing with martinis and and that goes back to gin and I mean it's funny because um, mixology is not exactly my my like specialty but um, been learning as far as what kind of the the bush versions of cocktails you know apply and martinis are, are absolutely one of those because the 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 two components in them is gin and vermouth and vermouth it has botanicals in it. And we've made vermouth in camp too. So a martini can be entirely made with just the stuff that's growing around your camp. Um, and I never, I never would have considered that five years ago, but these are the layers that we're, we've been peeling back on, uh, you know, every adventure is just kind of new layers of the onion that get unpeeled as to how you can interact with the space you're in, how can you can eat in a more connected way to that time and place. And essentially that's, that's basically the premise of what we've been doing for the entire series. Yeah. Wow. So what, um, of, of the, of the different drinks that you've made, what's the, what's the favorite cocktail? Is it, is it a single thing like, like the pine needles or is it this blend of different things that you just went? Okay. I'm going to go first. Jeff, but I want to hear, I want to hear Jeff, what Jeff has yeah. to say, but there's two things that really have stood out for me. One is uh, a drink that has become named the Melhattan because Mel Finn made a Manhattan in camp once with vermouth that she'd concocted and had a candied lichen. And, and it was just a, it was a beautiful drink. Uh, and I've, and we've, that's kind of in our, in our kit uh, on many trips. But I think probably the one that stands out the most as far as a terroir driven thing was uh, last year. I went single varietal on gin and, and decided to rather than blending all this stuff, let's just let's just taste like what lodgepole pine tastes like instead of a blend. What does that taste like? And I made what's called a gimlet out of it. And lodgepole pine, which is a gin based drink, and lodgepole pine has kind of a awkward vegetable kind of note to it that uh, Jeff solved with um, the freshness of some cow parsnip stem which has kind of a cucumbery note mm-hmm. and really balanced it out. So it was this really well-balanced drink uh, that was bright green and it was lodgepole pine and cow parsnip muddled together with lodgepole pine syrup as the, as the sweet. 
So like that's that's nuts that that's even possible. Never mind uh, drinkable and, and tasty and something you'd want to have again. So Jeff, how yeah, about you so what, cool. for drinks? What's what stood out? It's just what's on my tongue even currently. Let's say is uh, it's the the drink of the relationship. So to, to speak to from the wild, I think. Uh, pine and spruce needles are the biggest shocker. Like uh, and juniper berries that grow in Alberta as well. Juniper, these these crazy flavor punches exist. I would also say that bitters in our in our eco region are easy. Everything is bitter <laughs> at the wrong time of year, <laughs> and it gets a little less bitter in the spring or or in and you know the the fresh needles or the fresh sprouts or the baby leaves. Those uh, are you know aren't quite as bitter, but. I think it was important uh, when Kevin said that we were tasting cow parsnip and I just tasted cucumbers or watermelon rind and thought that uh, you can, and I have, I'm no uh, sommelier or flavor specialist. I just know this, Hey, this tastes kind of like cucumbers. And I had paid a lot of money in a bar in, um, in Calgary uh, when, where a friend works to have some sort of cucumber. Uh, I don't know. It was just a cocktail that involved that, those flavors of lime and cucumber together. And so we're just riffing and sharing ideas. So, so that, that the gimlet was unbelievable, but the relationship that we made because of from the wild, we partnered with a friend who had a winery, this Tyler Harlton wines, and he was selling us or closing down his winery actually just this uh, last winter. And he had some spare barrels, some Pinot Noir barrels. So I said, bring the barrels, bring me a barrel. I would love that as a, as a piece of history of the winery. And uh, so that friendship was, uh, came about because of from the wild, we went fishing in BC um, and he lives at Summerland. So he brought the Pinot barrel here and uh, there was a kid that worked at the meat shop, uh, the front end of our uh, slaughterhouse and her and her husband started a distillery called West of the Fifth uh, Distillery in Barhead. So uh, Tyler and I brought the barrel to them and I said, can you put some uh, 200 proof um, essentially vodka distillate in this and pull the flavors out of this distillate. And, uh, and so they did. And in six weeks we have, a uh, a, a Pinot Noir from the Summerland area and it had been used to make Pinot Noir for, for, I think it was a six year barrel or four year, four year old barrel. So it was, it was just this, this distillate plus the, the wood from the barrel and the wine from the barrel. And it's not a very good wild food story, but as a base whiskey, I think that that that's the ingredient maybe that I'm most excited uh, to bring to camp, to bear camp in, a, in the next few weeks, um, to be able to mixing that whiskey that sort of just has in it the story of uh, the relationships that we've built because of From the Wild. Um, it was a wild ferment, you know, like, and, and we, Kevin did an episode about the uh, wild harvested yeast as one of our favorite animals to harvest from nature was, was yeast because it would turn sugars into one of our favorite things to, to consume is, which is it's, that's not true. Right? Anyway, I'm excited about bringing that ing ingredient to camp and now, and now blending that whiskey and using the whiskey as a key ingredient to mixing with the bitters. And probably we're going to bring some simple syrup uh, made from not sugar. Cause that'd be so predictable, but out yeah. of my frame aged honey from bees that we had on the farm uh, that were my bees. We, we caught a wild, uh, wild swarm last spring, I guess. And they produced honey for us. Um, so we have this, this honey still in the frame so we can make the, the sweet sauce out of that. And then, and then whiskey, and then Kevin can be the maestro on, on bitters from the forest. So cool. it's, it becomes a lot of fun. So all of that, the idle time sitting and chit chatting or, or where my dad would have been playing solitaire or just getting, uh, getting drunk, we can be concocting and, and mixing recipes, uh, you know, to have one drink at the end of the night is, is quite nice. And then you're, you're not uh, in a mess, in, you know, in the morning, cause we do take uh, the filming and the, the hunting part quite seriously. So it's not a big party yeah. like it was for guys in the seventies and eighties to go hunting. 
I just have to refer back to something you said, Jeff, um, back in camp a long time ago, which is kind of the tipping point. And it's fun kind of identifying, it's weird documenting your your life in this way because you can kind of actually point to moments where you went, oh, that's the actual moment where we this this whole this all changed for us. But Jeff said at one point, we spend all this time um focused on terroir in our food. And then we pull out whiskey from Scotland. What sense does that make? Why would we not be drinking food from this food shed? Uh, at worst, from the food community uh, that we're in, uh, like Jeff mentioned, but at best from the actual uh, the actual location that we're at. So that yeah. was what really kind of started the the path on on making mixology a bit more of a a priority because of because of vermouths and spirits and and bitters and we're a way to extract some of the plant botanical flavors that you wouldn't just stick in your steak dish you know um you can make uh a, a wormwood bitters that goes into a, a cocktail with bubbly and it's amazing and delicious but mm. you wouldn't necessarily put that wormwood as a as a rub on your goose breast you know so it just kind of opened up some new doors gotcha that, that's, I mean, it's such an amazing story. And what, what this reminds me of is like, is taking human civilization and going back tens of thousands of years. And, and, you know, so, so there were these communities and groups, you know, that were living off of like what was around. And then just like Jeff's story, it's like you met a, met somebody and they were in the Okanagan and they had this and you had that. And then you traded. And then all of a sudden, like it, that story just, just totally reminds me of like, it's a, like, it's a, 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 a microcosm of, you know, the last 10,000 years on the continent. Oh man. Of, of I go into a certain these things and I go into a certain rage about the the colonial colonialization of, of indigenous culture and the bastardization of how we record uh, their food traditions and food cultures. And it's like, what can you name that's a traditional indigenous cuisine? And it's they're horrible things. Basically, Scottish foods uh, in Bannock and, um, and 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 you know raw wild meat is depicted in uh, modern culture, and uh, so. And I went pemmican. Raw, and yeah, pemmican. Yeah. Which is yeah. an amazingly inc- like a genius idea. But it's like separate- measuring a North American food culture by a cliff bar. Like that's not the only thing yeah. that's in that space. Yeah, if if 18,000 years from now, 21,000 years from now, someone finds a cliff bar package and remakes it. And then they say, Oh, all people in North America ate cliff bars. So if two guys, just two people that are, are maybe passionate about food, you could say not off the charts, just sort of passionate about food have discovered that everything around them over six or eight years of, of intensely going out three days a month, living in nature three days a month, not 30 days out of 30 days a month in six or eight years, we're like, I like that food. Why is the, why is the deer eating that? And what can we do with those rose hips? Because I just walk by them and then go and eat my Costco lasagna. Uh, but you ex- experiment with and respect the the rose hips. I believe just because a culture was an, like a non-written, like a non-written recorded culture, I, I just can't imagine uh, traveling in time 18,000 years and sitting down and having a dinner with a culture that lived 30 days, out, like 365 days out of 365 days on this earth. For thousands uh, of years, yeah. For that, mm-hmm. like what happens when, yeah, when you've been Kevin and Jeff from the wild year 20,000 or like <laughs> <laughs> episode 198,000, like they would be, they would perform magic in how they prepare food. Uh, 
anyway, when we talked about it, a great, or I, I could go on and on, but the, the, yeah. the, what would that look like? And then we sort of pishaw that because French or we pishaw that because Italian and, and the, the, tr- the true culinary genius of our uh, modern culture comes from Western Europe. And like, screw that, 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 that these, <laughs> these, you know, like they had to do so they, they could do such. And, and we found that you could do such amazing things with such primitive tools. So we're, we're carving a spatula out of a stick of firewood. And uh, if you have a, a flat rock, we're cooking on flat rocks. And, and, and then if you know what things taste like and when they're peak, um, we've, we've both commented and guests, including the chefs, uh, people have contributed a significant portion of their lives to learning about food, have said the best meals that they've ever eaten have been the meals prepared with sticks and rocks over a fire. Uh, after a day of uh, some physical exertion and then knowing like, and that was like, these were episodes where we knew three things that were good to eat out of the bush, just three and a protein. And you could combine those with some smoke and fire. And, and those are mind blowing. But as we get more into the botanical side, uh, the, the plant side, it's kind of uh, mind blowing that you realize you're walking across, as you walk into camp, you're walking across uh, the produce section of your grocery store, except everything is completely uh, organic and natural and belongs there. And it's just coming up, popping up out of the ground in order to feed, um, the, the, the mammals that, that are part of that whole system. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty spiritual. I would oh, say. Oh, totally. Totally. I mean, it, you could have this exact same conversation, uh, and now talk like about medicines, oh. it, you know, the same thing of like, you know, just exactly what you're talking about, 30 days, 365 days a year in learning like this at this time of the year, combined with this and this ailment and this headache and this condition and, and discovering antiseptics, you know, like in the, in the uh, sphagnum mosses and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's Absolutely. Yes. Um, I have the good fortune of working with uh, Robert Rogers, who's written, I guess he's approaching 60 books on the, that topic. Wow. Um, and he, we've worked with him on From the Wild and I work with him on uh, Les Stroud's Wild Harvest. And um, that's really opened my eyes to that whole topic. And that's, that's an entirely different <laughs> different oh. <laughs> thing. However, it's, it is so interrelated because it really comes back to the kind of cliche of, of let your food be your medicine and and the, mm. those those substances are in those botanicals and in those things that are out there. Um, so it's just an, a matter of broadening our brain that that um, to think that uh, more than just calories and vitamins and you know get on your treadmill uh, to manage your health. It's really about uh, a lot more things than that. And and uh, there's a uh, a broad array of things to learn on that front. One of the fun things that I hope can happen this year is we have a plan, a loose plan, if if these times will allow to actually have a dinner at our base camp where uh, like a public facing event where Robert teaches a bunch of medicinals on the on the property. And then uh, and then we have the menu uh, prepped by myself and a chef to um, basically around uh, physiology and medicine, uh, just so that the entire menu is based around that, that kind of concept to make people more aware of it. But that is wow. a that is a kind of a topic I have uh, decided to leave for uh, both people that know way more about it than I do, uh, and for a different series uh, because for from the wild that would be a, uh, you could just bury the entire show in that topic. It's so deep and broad. So uh, we've kind of wow. left it uh, simply into the culinary space and uh, and not not that one. 
Uh, you'll you'll find a way to weave it in. I can see it in your eyes. <laughs> well, well, even yeah, it'll so, be another so, show. Something that we do that, that we just, I mean, not just started, but started with some intent this uh, this winter was in the off season. Like, hey, do you want to go for a walk in some crown land? Get Kevin found on on. Uh, on satellite images, let's just go for a walk in this crown land um, to look for scrape rubs and scrapes and see if we can find some trails and some, some like push into some new uh, territory so that we have uh, the ability to connect with some good whitetail habitat is really what we're after. And so we're, we're just walking through the snow, uh, looking at tracks and scrapes and collecting chaga uh, off the, the, the birch trees and, and, and checking out spots and, and Kevin's dropping pins on like, Oh man, there's a lot of rose hips right here. Like make a note and like early in your hunting career, the way that I grew up, it, it was like uh, we wouldn't dad wouldn't stop the truck to shoot a deer because it was a waste of a bullet. We were hunting moose and that was it. If it's not a moose, it doesn't count. And and if it's not a pike that's 36 inches, it's it's your sissy, you know, like uh, the, the, like just shake the or shake the anything other than a walleye off your hook and and there's there's still people that fish like that right that uh those jackfish aren't worth worth eating um but but here we are like on the off season collecting and kind of as excited about finding rubs and scrapes and chaga and stands of uh, uh, rose hips as as examples as, as you would be um finding sheds it's it's like yeah you can go shed hunting that's cool it's fun uh, but it has limited use. But if you know a good patch of birch trees, or if you know like the kind of the edge, you know the, the edge of a of a bog where where there's a lot of um, uh, willow uh, and aspen shrub, you're like this is perfect for moose. So we we're dreaming now in the off season as 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 vividly as we are dur- during hunting. So I think that well, I'm gonna go for a walk and, and and see if I can find some bog cranberries that have frozen over winter. I'll bring a rifle in case I see a black bear. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Jeff, how many species, when we started uh, season one, I actually was resistant to black bear hunting at all for the series at the time, but it became quickly became spring bear camp, Jeff. But how many species do we go after at that time of year? I mean, there's beaver one and, and snowshoe hare. So those have become kind of two bycatch uh, small game species. And then all the gin stuff of which there's, there's, you know, lodgepole pine and black spruce and Labrador tea and all those kinds of things. Uh, but then last year it was, um, marsh marigold and fiddleheads and nettle and fireweed and cow parsnip. Like we're, we're into what, 12 species like that. And what, what measures, uh, we had a bit of a banner blackberry year. Yeah. But we really crushed it at all the other things. And it's what the, the measure of a successful outing really isn't, I think I think we've uh, critiqued ourselves in that for a show that's supposed to be about hunting things and fishing, that uh, often we'll just skip through the entire hunt entirely and uh, and be talking about something completely tangential to a black bear or a deer because we're on to something completely different or and exciting uh, culinarily that's has nothing to do with those things. Because another thing that I've said in the past that'll get me in some trouble sometimes is that. Um, you know, red meat is red meat is red meat to some degree. So if I shoot an elk and a moose and a bear and a deer in one episode, that's neat, but I'm better off shooting one big game animal and picking a mushroom or, or something else and picking a plant. And then I've got a more interesting, uh, you know, dish to make than if we just keep heaping on red meat upon red meat. So, yeah, um, no, I, I, I get it. Yeah. Diversity, right? Yeah. Wow. I love, I love you guys' passion. This is, uh, looking forward to getting into a, a few more, uh, a few more details here. Um, but yeah, infused gins, I think 
I, I think Curtis, I can see the wheels turning there as well. So, <laughs> oh, totally, man. <laughs> yeah. So, hey, everybody, it's Mark Hall, your host. And it's Curtis Hall, the co host. Speaking of booze and drinking, this episode is sponsored by the Fisher Peak Brewing Company. So, I'm a pretty big beer fan. I've sampled a lot of different styles from different breweries, they're all great. However, in my unbiased opinion, I genuinely like Fisher Peak beer the most. The main reason I hunt is because I can put high quality food on my table and I know exactly where it comes from. And I know that our listeners are on the exact same page. Knowing that Fisher Peak Brewery is a local small business using high quality ingredients and the brewing process has a very similar appeal to me. Now, granted, I didn't spend 10 hours and four trips packing all the hops out of the field on my back, but it's pretty close to the same feel. Man, the beer just tastes fresh. It's hard to explain. You just have to get a six-pack or a growler and try for yourself. Fisher Peak Brewing has won Canadian and BC awards for their hell-roaring Scottish ale, which I've said on previous podcasts, it's fantastic. That's one of my favorite beers from them. With 11 handcrafted beers on tap, including rotating seasonals, seven beers available in cans, and tap beers available for growler fills. They are the go-to beer folks. Just imagine enjoying an elk backstrap or some jalapeno duck poppers. Now pair that with a local high-quality beer from the folks down at Fisher Peak Brewing. And frankly, you could die happy right there. So thanks to the folks down at Fisher Peak Brewing for sponsoring this episode. Go grab yourself a six-pack or two. And shout out to iHunter for being a supporter of this episode. If you guys haven't checked out the iHunter app already, you're missing out big time. They have apps for nine provinces and territories, as well as six U.S. states. Their free app offers provincial, provincial, regional, and LEH regulations. And with the pro version, you can record your speed, altitude, and position. Draw over the map, plan your hunt, and even save your favorite management units. Pairing either of these apps with the public land subscription is the only way to go. We've said before, it's a fantastic feature that every hunter should be utilizing. And on that note, we've got a sweet deal. The folks down at iHunter are offering you 20% off your first year of their public land subscription. So when you download the app and subscribe to the public land feature, use the code THC podcast. If you're subscribing on your desktop, once you log into the mobile app using your same account, your subscription will appear there as well. So it's pretty easy. So the iHunter app, public land subscription, THC podcast, 20% off your first year. Thanks to the folks down at iHunter for offering that discount and supporting this episode. Awesome. Great deal. I love, I love iHunter app. Just know where the public land is, know where the private land is. It's just, it's, it's so, so critical. So yeah, go use that 20%. All right, everybody. We are joined by Kevin Coswan and Jeff Sanger. How are you guys doing? Good. I'm good. I also yeah. love iHunter, by the way. It's a great app. That, that was Isn't a game it? changer. Um, for, totally. for me personally, totally. just blew everything yeah. open. If you're, if, if you, if you're a new person and it's something that we're kind of mindful of a lot as far as like, how do people access all, 
all these layers of difficulty of trying to understand what you can and can't do amidst a sea of regulations and and land use. Um, iHunter really solved the land use part as far as where to where do I go. Um, so I yeah huge huge advocate. I've even convinced the old old elders in my family to use it. They were resistant for a number of years, but now they don't know <laughs> what they'd do without it. So there you go. There's a plug for your sponsor. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. It is a fantastic tool. And like I've said before, it's uh, it's up to us as crown land users and hunters to stay off of private land that we don't have permission to be on. And that to me is the tool to know that because not, as you guys know, there isn't a sign, there isn't a fence, there isn't things, but you can step over private land and it's our responsibility to know. So yeah, right on. So you guys are the producers and directors and movie stars and creators and everything of the series from the wild. And it's produced by story chaser productions. That's you, Kevin. That'd be my production company. Yep. Yeah. And, and Kevin is your prima donna superstar. Well, I don't know about that. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a lot. (laughs) I was, uh, I watched, uh, the first episode season seven, uh, which was when you guys went out and the pandemic had just started and, uh, yeah, Jeff's just pretty funny. On that yeah, one. that was probably the the highest level of comedy in the series to date. Is Jeff was back and with a vengeance. That was a funny one. Yeah, it totally was. Yeah, cutting the can open and his uh, metaphors for things that were hard and stiff and frozen and stuff. That was so. That was that was great. So from the wild, so your season seven. And over your guys' journey in putting these um, these series together and all of the episodes, you've got definitely got recognition from um, the food industry and the film industry. Uh, Edmonton International Film Festival, Festival uh, official selection, um, Devour Food Film Festival um, selection, and the James Beard Foundation uh, Award nominee for best web series on location and visual technical excellence. Yeah, that was a big deal, that one. That's amazing. The big deal with that last one was that um, it was a nomination up against uh, Netflix's Chef's Table and CNN's Parts Unknown with Anthony Bourdain. So it was kind of, uh, it still is surreal to this date that that's on the the CV because... um, those are gigantic names and the show is shot and produced and scored by, by me. So yeah. uh, we're not a big crew. We're not a big team. It's a micro team and often solo. So that's uh yeah, that was a big, that was a big deal. So, and you went overseas for, for that, that ceremony, didn't you? If I remember following you or was that down uh, in the James States? Beard? Yeah. The James Beard foundation is, is American and, um, which means being a Canadian and being recognized at all is incredible to begin with. Um, and that we are being measured against every web series in the United States and every show about food in the United States in North America, I guess. Uh, so that was a big deal. Yeah. Oh, huge deal. And what I saw is like the recognition you got from those communities and your peers and stuff. And like, 
your focus is on wild food and, and includes hunting. And it was, it was accepted. You know, I just, I think that is, is huge accolades for what you're doing for everything in, you know, caring for the environment, being connected to wildlife, including hunting and fishing and food, just like, it's just all part of that. And the fact that you're from Canada and Alberta and stuff is just, it's just amazing. I just uh, can't say enough. Like those, those are definitely big, big awards and it, it's fantastic to see, you know, yeah, and you know, it's, and fishing and a small part of that being recognized. I haven't thought about it much, but now that you mention it, the, uh, it is odd that the way these things happen, the, the reason I would say that, uh, from the wild is, was on the radar of the, of the Beard Foundation was because of one, in, one person who was a journalist, uh, who was on their board, who saw from the wild as something really unique and different and values driven. It wasn't, it's not created by an entertainment conglomerate. We don't have anybody funding the project other than viewers. So it really can be uh, as much of us wearing our heart on our sleeve and uh, as we want. Um, we can be as as challenging to the status quo as we want. Uh, and and they really saw that as something they wanted to support. Uh, and they, they told me that. So uh, I think that's why we had the opportunity there is because we were... Um, really started the series from a, a place, a values driven place and have, and have always kind of kept it on that track. Wow. Wow. That's, that's amazing to get that kind of feedback from, from that, that level. Um, yeah. Tyra yeah, Banks just, was at the second one and Padma Lakshmi was the first one. From, <laughs> I mean, these are mega people. There's all kinds of famous people. I got to meet Alton Brown. Who's amazing. And um, so did, did you say, Hey, come to Northern Alberta and we'll teach you how to hunt and gather uh -huh. plants and drink gin. That's what we need. Few, few people like that to, uh, I don't know, man. To, to I don't know. I don't know. I think we have the right people in the community for that. It's no, people totally. Doing it. Yeah. Totally. I, think we, I don't think we need validation from someone from a different country to come tell us how to, you know, do, do what we're doing. So I think, uh, I'm, I'm uh, proud I was, of what I was always thinking is, you know, when you get somebody like that, that might have like this, different view and then you bring them in and you expose it to it then all of a sudden they're like this is not what i thought this is really cool and then they become like an yeah. advocate for for what you do kind of thing right? that's so. been on the steady uh as far as the show goes in general i would say the the people that we've had out i think have one thing in mind when it comes to hunting and fishing and foraging and then you get uh buried in it with us for a few days and you get exposed to a whole bunch of stuff that you didn't didn't think was the case so um, yeah, I mean, it, it, that's been a regular kind of response of people that have been in the field as guests, uh, culinary people who have been in the field. Yeah. Well, that's, that's cool. That's, that's awesome. I mean, you guys are great, great Canadian ambassadors. Um, your outdoors, hunting, fishing, wild food ethos and philosophies, I think are just, they're good. They're wholesome. They're ethical. And it's just, it's what is needed right now. So, um, that's love, love what you're doing. And, uh, so, so back us up a little bit and take us into how you got started. What's the why behind From the Wild? So Jeff, um, you and I met around uh, the filming of Killing Things. I think that's the first kind of time I ever spent with you was at the kill floor filming a video that still gets a lot of traction on Vimeo. 
Um, so how important was it to you when we started that we focused on, you know, the stuff that wasn't being shown? Oh yeah. I was just about to say that I, I really hated the hunt or I, I hate the genre of hunting, uh, shows, although I consume and watch a lot of them, but it was Americans with face paint on whispering into the camera. And then I hadn't heard Kevin say the term grin and grip. But just like they lift the heads up in the scene and um, it was just like a really unsatisfying, you know, like, um, you know, hours and hours of stalking and whispering and stalking and whispering and then the kill shot and it's over. And uh, it just my input into the experience of fishing and hunting was like, was just thinking that like, why be shy uh, about showing all of the rest of it? So packing and setting up and splitting firewood and sort of the, the mundane tasks of making coffee in the morning uh, can be poetic or beautiful uh, if you spend the time and show it. And Kevin had the eye and the camera to be able to do that. And it was a story that was important to me and of, uh, to tell. And of course, uh, having left the city as an accountant and buying a slaughterhouse for some random reason uh, 11 years ago. So our, my life has changed quite a bit. Um, but I had such strong emotions around growing animals on this farm that we started and, and then, uh, being a murderer, uh, for hire two days a week, we kill and five days a week, we cut meat. So, um, I, I want, like, I don't know, just my personal feelings revolved around letting people, uh, see the things that happen with their food production uh, that that was not no not even available in mainstream. So I think that's the real Venn diagram overlap between Jeff and Kevin is that you know Kevin had the means and the passion to tell a story and then uh, and then I had and I and I mean I had the the passion about growing food and and or taking animals and turning them into food. And, and then my hobby and passion in fishing and hunting. So like we could, I, I was a natural on film to tear the guts out of things because I do it for a living. So, and also some legitimacy, like I cannot wear military face paint. I feel like a clown wearing camouflage clothes. I'm going to say that. And that's probably an unpopular opinion. I just think it's silly. Um, I've killed so many animals um, in so many different places and ways that I think that there's a lot that, uh, large companies want you to believe that are a part of hunting that have nothing to do with hunting. And then uh, media shows you parts of hunting that are very small part of hunting that you think that's all of what hunting is, is shooting trophy bucks. And <laughs> even for a seasoned monster of a hunter, like for example, Kevin's dad, who retired early and, and, and has a hunting cabin and contributes, Kevin, what would you say? Like that guy hunts four months out of the year, like four months of his life is, and like maybe six months on like a, uh, days on the ice and days in the field. Yeah, it's a lot. He's got it bad and he doesn't bag a trophy buck most years. Like he kills an animal every year or three or five, but he doesn't shoot a big trophy buck. So those crazy, like just leave it to Americans to be American. And they are like, they're like you if you watch because now that Kevin has turned to open my eyes to how productions work, you watch how those film crews go from state to state. So these guys are hunting 15 bucks a year and they're sitting in trees like six months out of the year. They're sitting in a tree. I can't think of anything worse in the world like to, to sort of sell your life out like that. <laughs> Oh, they're making lots of money. And like, I don't think they're making lots of money either, but they have a lot of stickers on their personal family vehicles. And I just think what a horrible life. Like they, they must, 
I'd love to talk to them behind the scenes, some of those guys, and just say, like, your lifestyle is awful. And and what are you doing this for? So so telling a story in a different way and like just just showing the parts of it that other people don't show and finding the beauty in uh, Bog Cranberry is, is a, something that's like, I think that we probably have a lot of, uh, although they haven't popped up and maybe Kevin can speak to this. We, we had no hate on Kill Day, the film, which is a five minute thing of me working on the kill floor. In fact, we had nothing but love and zillions of views. So, and no one threatened to kill me or my family, which is weird. And it was super graphic, but it was just us talking or me talking about, uh, about killing. And then the gruesome bits of, of, uh, of the hunting and fishing, uh, Kevin, any flack lately? No, um, no, not from viewers, but I think a lot of the viewers who would be watching the show would already have drank the Kool-Aid on, on a lot of the, the holistic perspective on food. I would say what it did do is out of the gates, it limited our audience it limited where we could place that content um and you see more of it now a lot has changed in the last eight years um but at the time we saw a tv contract early on and it was it's was specific about how many seconds you could show of an animal bleeding or how much blood you could show or whatever and so most of what we every field dressing scene or butchery scene would just be like nope 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 um, so, and, and the, the clause yeah. I liked on that contract early on that taught me about the hunting film industry was when you shoot an animal inside a fence, make sure that the fence is like you're at least 100 yards from the fence. Like when you're doing a canned <laughs> hunt on a ranch, make it look like it's oh, a wild man. animal. And it's just like these, this is pathetic. Like the, the, the mainstream industry like needs to be shaken up even worse than what little from the wild is doing, but, but I had legitimate fears when from the wild was going to be distributed. It just started in January of 2021 here, um, on wild TV, the hunting channel. Uh, I don't have a subscription to that channel. I used to, and my wife said she got tired of listening to dogs barking and Americans whispering. And, uh, and so did I, it was like, it was the same show over and over and over again. Um, but I thought that we might be in trouble with all of those hunters saying like, what the hell is wrong with you guys? Like you didn't even show the kill shot. Or you didn't like who shoots a fawn? Like what's or who shoots a doe? What's wrong with you guys? And so far, my social media like I'm not absent or I didn't uh, didn't avoid social media, so I'm still present. And I got a few followers, no huge super bump, and people like paying attention to one of the one of the talent folks, one of the on screen guys in the show. Like so, I didn't nothing really happened. But I thought for sure someone would sneak through, and like someone who was kind of animal rightsy, which would offer to kill myself and torture my children. None of that uh, with two hundred and fifty thousand eyeballs or something like an, a gross viewership. Uh, Kevin, any any thing in your inbox that you would delete? Huh? Nope. And I wasn't called names like being a sissy because I do cry quite a few times <laughs> during interviews when I'm having a beautiful moment, like an emotional time. And Kevin's like, that's great. I'm like, could you please edit my crying? He's like, no, the guts are in, your tears are in. Like it's, I thought I'm going to get beat up or I'm going to have to fight for my life at some bar somewhere, but like so far nothing. So we're just going to keep doing it the way we've been doing it, I guess, and go deeper into sort of the spiritual, emotional connect connection. If you did watch the whole series and don't feel bad if you haven't, because even my dad hasn't watched the, the whole series, but there is an other's mind. <laughs> they love us. They really do. <laughs> they really get what we're about. Um, but there's an episode where we, we have this great writer friend called uh, Jennifer Cockrell King. And we have a great photographer uh, called Jens, whose last name is jumping out of my mind completely. 
and uh, Giselle, uh, the painter, Giselle Dennis, Denis. Uh, so we go, so we bring painters, like, so we're bringing chefs to camp all the time. And I really think the overlap of chefs that prepare a lot of food and think about where those ingredients come from uh, worked really well. So we got along and connected and bonded over four or five days in camp or on the water or whatever with, uh, with folks in the food scene, because our shared passion of uh, the key and like the best ingredients, the freshest ingredients and, and local or uh, ingredients were, there's a huge overlap there. But this experimental uh, episode was what if we brought a painter, a writer and a photographer to camp to see, see hunting and wild food collection through the lens of the writer and, and the photographer and the painter. And then in the episode, I'm painting a freaking uh, acrylic painting with this woman who, who makes her living selling hundreds of paintings per year. And she's instructing me in bear camp, painting this painting. And that painting is the most valuable thing in our house. If there was a fire, I wouldn't run in and get my tacky taxidermy. I'd run in and get, well, once my children were saved, I would get the, uh, that painting has so much meaning because we painted it in bear camp after killing some, I mean, there are always bears dead in bear camp, but we killed a bear and these people who are never exposed to hunting or wild food uh, were having a trip about it. Like they, like they weren't upset. They, they're just like emotional about it. And we're having all these conversations about where food comes from. And then in that emotional state, she's painting a picture that I think she gifted to Kevin, right? That's on your wall, isn't it? Yeah. The cabin with the reds. And I made this, anyway, this weird abstract painting. And uh, my, one of my daughters has it in her room and they're all like, we would fight over that painting one day when I'm no longer around because you can see me painting it. And Kevin captured that with his, with his uh, video equipment, which is just the whole story kind of cl closes the loop on the story of, and it maybe is a metaphor for the entire series, series, like exploring what other people can get out of their relationships with nature and food and the wild. And then, I mean, I, these people who had never like been to Crownland before were like, well, can I swear? <laughs> they're like, what the, <laughs> what the silliness is this? And, and it's like, that's the clear cut. And they're like, why the silly is there a silly, silly clear cut in the silly bush? And it's like, yeah, this, these are oil lease roads. This is what the exploitation economy is about. Like you commodify trees. They're only valuable when they're cut down. And these people that would have no reason to go chase anything in, in, in like normal, like a normal, easy, accessible spot in Alberta had never, they'd never considered where their toilet paper comes from. So I think we had more conversations about toilet paper than we did about squirrels and, and, and habitat, habitat loss, uh, eating beavers. And like, what does the watershed look like where that beaver was? And it's like, whoa, that's like, there's an oil slick on the top of that. Well, yeah, they spill stuff and whatever. And then, uh, and then do we want to eat bears or thank God for uh, pipelines, transmission lines, because they green up early and that makes habitat for these black bears. So I really enjoyed having that dialogue with new hunters and to, to a huge, like probably 60% of the show is like a person who's never seen nature coming to nature and then thinking about all these big questions about our interact interaction and exploitation of it. So we've easy conversation uh, around, you know, meat comes on a styrofoam tray and, and folks saying, why do people have to go hunting? They could just go to the store and, and get their meat. <laughs> like meat is produced in the grocery <laughs> store. Nothing dies that way when you buy your chicken and beef at a grocery store. Um, so all of that is, is a bit of a laugh and it's a conversation. That's a philosophical debate like that we passed back in kindergarten. And now we're having talks more about, um, 
who uses this equipment when uh, when the when the log skinner or when the this DC cat sinks into a, a bog and no one comes to get it? Who cleans it up? <laughs> you know. So yeah, meat is obviously something that you should be involved with, but who cleans up nature when they? How do they reseed this? Or is a monoculture uh, pine forest any good for anything? And and then so from a, from the lens of a hunter, no. Like, have you ever seen tracks in the snow through a monoculture's um, pine replanting? No, just pass it. Go like next wolves. I guess we've seen wolf tracks in pine monocultures, uh, but the mixed forest and edge effects are cool. So it's not all negative. They're edge effects through the destruction of timberlands, like uh, reduces forest fires, I guess. Um, but these conversations are something that's happening and bringing, maybe that's how we appeal to a broader audience. That It's not just uh, food fetishism and it's not just killing like a, a GI soldier in a violent movie, it's like, well, uh, I don't know when you're, when you're touched by the spirit of, of whatever it is that makes up nature and you're reacquainted with something that I said before, like something that's remote in your DNA, but still there for all of the years of evolution that you did when you needed to survive on this earth with your wits, your keen wits and your sense of smell and your, um, your fingernails and teeth. Um, something is touched deep in you uh, while you're out there in the, in the remote parts of the nature. And then you think I have a relationship with this. And so I might think about protecting it or doing something different than just going to Costco. The lowest price might not be the law. Maybe. (laughs) Do you think, do you think people's experience uh, and connection is different when when it's the food involved, like if you, if you took those same people out there and you weren't collecting wild edibles, you, you weren't hunting something, you weren't preparing that all at nighttime and just sort of like, this is just like a, a, a a nature viewing trip. Do you, do you think the same lights would go on? Would they see the same things or is it different when, when they got to eat as well, when they're out there? I think the food part is, is way more intimate it, it like hmm. it, there's there's killing and murder there's blood there's death like there were thoughts around the bear and the bear family and i mean we pull a pike out of lake and you're like a, a giant predator fish and you think like are all the yeah like we make comments like all the other fish can sleep easy tonight because we just killed a 24 pound <laughs> pike and and then uh, like the next biggest fish moves over like you're watching down the ice you're just spending hours contemplating nature and i think it can do nothing but good for your soul and also for the respect that you show to all ecosystems when you're in that life and death struggle you know, you're you're not in it <laughs> you're gen- generally there's only a few times where kevin and i thought we, we might actually die and uh, we're pretty well equipped and there's helicopters at worst to, to get you out. That's, we've never had to call in a helicopter. So you're not part of a life and death struggle. But when you watch something die and consider the effects on the community and the familial relationships of that bear, which is kind of a weird thing to think about. And then you're tearing it apart with your hands and a knife and you're, you're looking at its organs and you're talking about, well, this is a this is an organ just like my organ. I wonder what my insides look like. And then you're eating it over fire. Um, that emotional connection is so... Uh, kind of emotionally connective that uh, you can't help but I think you just trip on an epiphany when you see the entire when you go through the entire ride if you're just observing like on a safari like you say I don't think you really get like how you almost have to enter the the game of trying to solve the puzzle like I want to locate a squirrel or a rabbit a bear or a moose 
how best would I do that with the tools that I have? And a lot of folks that are, I mean, we hang out with some of the smartest people I've ever met. And it's interesting when you present them with the challenge and the puzzle and they start playing the game, then the game becomes a part of them and they really get the, the they have a connection to it once they've played the game of trying to solve a simple puzzle. And even if that's catching a fish, um, where might they be in this ecosystem? And so uh, it's really easy to do that with children and they're really honest, open and honest with their questions. And I've had a really good uh, time involving my four daughters with uh, being a part of a food shed, of a food ecosystem, both agrarian and on the farm, and then bringing them out to bear camp and, and giving them a taste of um, wild raspberries and uh, juniper berries. And, and, and then, and then the, we grow rabbits. One of the two of the kids projects are these meat rabbits. And then we, I shoot a snowshoe hare and bring it home. And we're like, Oh, why would like, there are differences. Um, and, and so I think that connectedness with food is important. If there's ever going to be preservation or conservation, I think people have to get connected before they can, they can know whether hunting's right or wrong. Maybe they should try it. I would argue. Yeah. Everyone can try shopping at Walmart, but not everyone can try collecting and then eating their own food. And it doesn't need to be meat, but there, that is pretty, uh, it's an emotional thing when you connect when you're killing another mammal. I think you can kill fish and plants <laughs> kind of haphazardly, but when you have to kill a mammal, that's why there's, there are so many vegetarians and vegans. That's why there's so much resistance because it's quite an awful thing to do. And I know better 10 or 15,000 times better than average people, but it's not a fun, <laughs> it's not a fun thing without its own gravity to kill a thing to then eat. But then you take it on the, your own shoulders and carry the burden of that and say that, for people to eat, someone has to do it and doing it well and humanely becomes uh, my reason to be is to do uh, the, the harvesting of those mammals that are just so similar to us to do that harvesting well, like as if it was a family member uh, and then learn. I mean, God, the so I'm 11 years into the slaughterhouse and eight years into From the Wild and a whole lifetime of hunting a lot less uh, hunting and fishing a lot less when I was like from age five till now. But um it only become the more I learn as an older, getting older man is, uh, man, uh, the commodification of living things was the worst thing that the, the worst trick that the devil ever played on humanity is commodifying living things. What a horrible mistake that was. Um, just treating it like a, a dollar value thing and then putting the folks in charge of earth, uh, as profit seeking corporations who have responsibility to create profit. And I, I don't want to get all political, but it is, it's tied in. Um, if you're maximizing profit and that's your goal for the shareholders to maximize profit, and then the objects you trade in is are living things, how did you expect it to go? <laughs> and we kind of have the exact <laughs> results that would happen. If you built a game around those two rules, that living things are just commodities like sand or, or um, plastic or oil onto the ground or gravel, uh, and then also seek profit, then the larger systems are really a disaster. And the smaller systems are quite, can be quite beautiful from the hen in your yard to the, the snowshoe hair that you cook and eat yourself. Even if it's only a tiny fraction of what you consume, uh, being a part of that transaction, uh, can, and, and I would say 90% of the time trips a switch in your brain where you think probably living things shouldn't be commodities. And so it'll change the decisions that you make when you go to the supermarket. And I think that that's great. A podium to, to for me to spew my my uh, religious zeal uh, about this uh, is, 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 all, is what Kevin points a camera and he says, here, just talk about how you feel. <laughs> and that's what I bring. <laughs> Not all of the characters that appear in the show, you know, necessarily bring that. But I think that, or they don't get that angry or that excited. Um, 
But I think that they all have a similar, or we've all shared an experience that food matters a lot more than you think. And that the commodification of all of, uh, not just the creatures in the forest or the creatures, but the, the plants, animals and forests uh, is, is a pretty seriously big issue that we can just avoid looking at if we never leave our uh, nine to five job driving from home to work and work to home. If that's all you ever see is the office and, and the inside of your condo, um, you're not going to give it much, much thought, I think. Yeah. Well, that uh, I, I actually was, uh, I just read this last night. This kind of ties in perfect. This is from uh, a quote from a Sand County Almanac. And it says, uh, conservation is getting nowhere because it is incompatible with our Abrahamic concept of land. We abuse the land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. When we see land as a commodity in which we belong, we may begin to use it with love and respect. I have to jump in because when people, I get challenged. Um, and from the, from the beginning, it's kind of this common argument of, oh, well, if you're encouraging people to harvest uh, a moose, then you're, then, then in one day when everyone listens to you, there'll be no more moose because we'll harvest all the moose, um, which is a pretty simple argument to make. But uh, my, my rebuttal is always, uh, sometimes it's a longer answer, but the short answer is if no one ever cares or ever knows or interacts with that moose, if we don't even know the moose is out in the bush and that, that maybe that we don't want that moose to dissolve from this planet or be extirpated or extinct, that we're, we're going to need to care about that thing. How do we do that? And, um, and hunting and eating them, uh, isn't as destructive as I think people think. And if you wrap around this idea of intimacy and connection and, uh, it becoming part of your value system, once you interact with a species, eating a species to me, uh, only feeds your interest in conserving that space and, and seeing that habitat thrive and seeing that species thrive. I have yet to meet a hunter who says, man, I can't wait. We're going to kill all those deer and there won't be a <laughs> single one of them left. Like, that's just not a thing. That's not a thing at all. Uh, Absolutely. So, so uh, in my mind, it's kind of like an agriculture. If, remember when we were discussing the Tamworth pig uh, and with slow food and there was this, uh, this notion that if you wanted to preserve that species, you had to eat it because otherwise no one would care about it and no one would grow it and it would just go away and that species would be gone. And the way to make sure it's still around is to eat it and build it into people's culture and build it into their psyche so that they'll value it. And conservation with uh, wild spaces is no different than agriculture in that way. No, that makes a lot of sense. I, this is, I mean, this is kind of a joke, but I've heard this before that the most successful living organism on the face of the planet in the history of life on the planet is the chicken. Be biomass and sheer yeah. numbers they outnumber people like a hundred to one you know you know that that sort of thing trillions of chickens and it all boils down to one thing is they evolutionarily figured out that if you taste good you're gonna be around for a long time <laughs> so yeah, they're tender it's a good trait but uh but i mean one of the things that i try to weave into my narratives when I'm speaking or, you know, whatever I do is, is exactly this and in, in communicating like why I hunt is I'm getting people to think about, um, ecosystems and wildlife and the plants as a food system and, and conservation 
you know, which is like our tool for, you know, protecting and, and making sure that, you know, biodiversity, you know, every, everything's there and has its place and can function and stuff. To me, part of the job of conservation, one of it is, is it's food security as well. Like, like there's, there's not just this altruistic aspect of conservation to preserve biodiversity for the sake of biodiversity. Um, there, there is, there's the intrinsic values, but there's also, I think the value that we're doing conservation, we're protecting areas, we're managing ecosystems, you know, properly because it is a food system. And, and to me, if we start thinking about everything out there holistically as a food system as well, like there's a benefit that, that we get from it, not just that we're satisfied at night in our condo, like you say, that everything has a place to live out there. But we're also thinking about this as a way that some of us, you know, or a good portion of Canadians um, are subsisting off of that. I find it's a different, it's a different way of looking at it. And, and it's changed a few people's minds. Feedback I've got from people that have uh, a couple of weeks ago, some college students and stuff um, that were listening to me speaking this way about hunting and kind of the, the what the world is facing with in the, uh, and in order to feed all the people, the amount of native ecosystems that are going to have to be converted to agriculture land in the next, you know, 30 to 50 years kind of thing. And, and, and sort of showing how I'm trying to fit in to sort of preserve that by feeding myself from this food system. Uh, um, people texted me afterwards and said there were some people that, you know, weren't big hunters or didn't, you know, agree with this stuff that they said that really had an impact on them. So. Yeah. And I have to jump in there. I've spent a career now filming every nook and cranny of agriculture and the wild food space. And the more time I spend pointing cameras at at these topics, the more they're, it's just one in the same discussion. It's the planet is one, it's singular agriculture. Like if, for example, all the farms on the grasslands that stole all the bison habitat, uh, that, that is producing food. Yes. But that also is a native grassland ecosystem. So, um, to me, when people say, oh, there's wild food in the city, I tell them, no, the city's just plopped right on top of the Aspen parkland ecosystem where I live. And the farms that we use for agriculture just plopped right on top of the native grasslands of the prairies. So they're not two different discussions. It's the same, it's the same real estate on the same planet with the same necessity to do one thing uh, as far as humans for us is to, we eat plants and animals and you can debate animals, but we eat plants and animals. So whether they come from one little square patch of of an agriculture space or one, you know, different shaped space in the wild, to me, it doesn't matter. Uh, you're, we're still having the same conversation and those two spaces interface in so many ways. If you think that you're hunting animals that don't eat stuff off of a farm, yeah, right. Like good luck finding, I mean, those places exist. I, I hunt some of those animals, but for the most part, people are eating animals that exist in both those spaces. If you think your watershed is just in or agricultural areas are just in wild spaces? Like probably not. Most of it's probably in a bunch of blended use areas. So um, I think that conversation is a, is a tricky one, but in my brain, it is, it is like you mentioned the word holistic. It's, it's just one big globe and humans eat plants and animals and which of those we eat is kind of the, the discussion point and why. And regarding conservation, I think that's just, I can't, um, Again, it seems so obvious that that should be an objective of the human species to to 
to conserve biodiversity and uh, ecosystems on the planet and not just wreck them like reckless idiots. Um, <laughs> that should be obvious. It's obvious to children and it becomes less obvious as we get used to and adapted to the weird social and economic constructs that we've created to do all kinds of other things uh, that make humans happy. But um, yeah, the, the basis, the basic fundamental of, hey, don't wreck the planet uh, shouldn't be something that has to be a revelation about. It should just be intuitive. And sadly, that's not the case all the time. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Totally. Yeah. No, I mean, I was just, you know, what you're saying about, you know, wildlife kind of like, you know, eating on, you know, agriculture and man-made spaces as well, like that are plopped down on those areas. I was just thinking like about migratory birds, right? Like you, you might be in some, you know, place way in, you know, uh, up on your property or whatever and some geese or, you know, something come by, but it's just like, think about all the farms all the way down to, to Mexico or whatever that they've been probably high grading all, all the way up. And it's like, that's that, agriculture nutrition is coming to you in, you know, possibly a natural setting in Northern Alberta. Right. So it's, it's, yeah, to them, they're still seeing that landscape as being, you know, being one. So, um, so Jeff, I remember earlier this winter was before, after Christmas, um, you kind of had like a little, um, talk that you put on social media and it, it was, it was beautiful. And you were kind of talking about perceptions that people have of hunting and some of these things is just sort of like, well, the snowshoe hair, well, that's weird. Um, you know, or the conversations we had earlier about bears, you know, kind of uh, deer and uh, eat them or whatever. And you had a really elegant way of kind of like saying, why is that weird? Cause it's like, it's right next door to me, but I'm in Northern Alberta or central Alberta. And it's like, I got this Kiwi and it's like, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> Cause you know, you explain where it came from. Maybe just fill listeners in a little bit about that philosophy. Cause I thought it was pretty, a pretty cool way to get people to think about hunting and, and, and getting your food is not being weird. Well, no. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, waking up to the dysfunction that we've all been habituated to accept as normal uh, is really problematic when the, 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 the fish on your plate comes from the other side of the planet and it's filled with all of like, not only is that that might not be the healthiest ecosystem in the world because of the regulations of those countries that pump their effluent into wherever that fish came from. You don't know. And because you don't know, uh, you just you. You only worry really about the price of what it is that you bought and then you get it on your plate and that's completely normal, whether that be uh, a weird kiwi fruit or watermelon in the middle of winter here. Um, all of this, the, the, the fetishism of eating uh, things that are out of season from the other side of the planet, normalizing, transporting, a, you know, a kiwi uh, 10,000 kilometers for me to buy a 99 cent kiwi at the local grocery store in the dead of winter. I mean, kiwis actually make some sense because it's it's uh, summer on the other side of the planet. But um, um, th that's just plain dysfunctional. I, I get that there's an argument can, that can be made about hunting that it's immoral. Uh, eating animals could be immoral. Okay, sure. Now, now you're talking. But at least it's not dysfunctional. <laughs> like, yeah, I may be immoral, but I, I may be amoral, but at least I'm not dysfunctional. Um, uh, 
So it's a lot more natural. And, and again, Kevin has said this with a, being a dad of three kids, uh, a little bit younger than mine, but my girls are, go, are teenagers and they're kind of growing into young women uh, with the foundation of, um, we've been here for almost all of their, like they, we've been in the country living rurally for all this time. And there are patches of bush on our farm. And then there are patches of bush five minutes down the road. And so it was normal for that. Like it was a normal part of growing up to just go get a fish or I would get home from my office job in white court. And I would say to the middle, one of the middle kids who wants to jump or all the kids who wants to jump the pond. We have a dugout over there, uh, 300 meters over there. I'll come with you, dad. So I'd put three shells in the shotgun and walk over to the pond. And there's an inv invariably three ducks on the pond. And I'd sometimes get one of them. And then we have one duck to pluck. Like, and then <laughs> I've got a cousin, blah, blah, long story. <laughs> he's in Calgary. He's a pilot. She's a doctor. And he uh, like sort of, he took a swig from the Kool-Aid as a new first generation, new hunter, didn't have a dad that hunted. And uh, he I was in his, we went to Calgary, this was before COVID, uh, stayed at his place and I'm in his basement. He's got like a $2,500 duck blind. And he said, you know, I tried to get these pilot friends of mine and guys I work with to come out and shoot some ducks uh, for, you know, a guy's weekend. And they got halfway through stuffing the grass in the blind and they were too lazy to finish stuffing the blind. They're like, this is too much work. It's not worth it. <laughs> and I mean, camo, you know, like you can, you can go, like you can just, you can be sold hunting or, and, and I actually, I think that if I was a, a rational person who didn't grow up with hunting and I was presented with hunting the way that sort of the, the big chain stores and the, even the specialty hunting stores want to sell it to you and mainstream media want to sell it to you. I would say that's appalling. What those people like, this is a way to sell 39 cent t-shirts for $45. Cause they're in some stupid reptile gray and brown pattern. And you don't need a $45 t-shirt to go jump the pond. But if, again, if like, it's weird, if, if society over the last hundred years saw the, the biggest migration of meat on the planet, isn't caribou or chickens. It's human beings moving to cities like where 99% of people were agrarian. And now 1% uh, of people in North America anyway, are kind of living rurally and have a direct interaction raising or being involved with the production of food. Um, then they're really easily exploitable. So I will sell you a camouflaged uh, steering wheel cover for your Ford F 35,000. And you'll think that that, camouflage steering like as a part of like they're selling tribalism right i've got this camouflage tattoo i've got the browning some guy this is a long story but i interact with some guy who's very rural and very backwoods he's a kid in his teens and had a browning tattoo on his on his bicep like as big as a as a dinner plate and i'm like people are branding themselves with corporate logos because they want to be part of this toughness tribe of like grip and grin and uh, I have the maximist uh, broadhead that's ever broadheaded anything. And then they go out and try to stuff a duck blind. And they're like, this is over 15 minutes of concerted effort. I'm going to play on my phone. And, and, and so, so I'm going to cut the fence to drive my truck into the pharmacy field to, to collect my grouse because I don't want to walk to collect the bird and carry it to my. Like, so, I mean, I'd like to say it's the minority, but I think um, it's a danger of new hunters if if the folks that just want to sell the made in China products and like $400 backpacks and uh, cooler bags, $400 cooler bags. I think we've come for the, the cooler price could be going down. It doesn't need to be $500, but, 
but but that's where we're at. It's evolving to better exploit morons. Like that, there, there's a there's a there's a big market and billions of dollars um, that's evolved to better exploit stupid people from energy drink. Like you see it in all facets of society. But I think dumbing people down and putting them out of touch with things that really matter, and then put and then replacing that with the the, the logo brandism and tribalism, and then one guy pointing at another guy saying, "Well, you you shoot a Matthews bow, you're an idiot." And then will you shoot a whatever brand bow? You're an idiot. Kevin, my friend, the, 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 the most sensational, like this guy and this series, but Kevin is in a room on earth that's a handful of people in a unique space. Like it's a specialty within a specialty within a specialty. So he's not that, Kevin's not that great, but he's pretty great. Handful of, there's only a handful of people on earth that's got Kevin's skill set. And you would even say like, oh, what a guru of wild food, guru of, of hunting. And Kevin, what year was your compound bow built in? 1980 what? I have no idea. It's my dad's. Exactly. Like, and like, <laughs> have you been as successful with that as like, as the average bow hunter for hours put in? Of course you have. How about your shotgun? How about your 30 odd six? Is it a whiz bang 338 Weatherby Magnum or 3378 Weatherby Magnum with a diamond luster uh, super, you know, like we talked a lot about this that, yeah, no, it was my it was my great uncle Joe's gun uh, that I inherited when he died. So that and that gun's killed a lot of big game animals. And also it has meaning. My hands. It has meaning, which yeah. is the important thing. And then you eat it. You don't you don't shoot for like you're you don't limit out on geese and then give them away to the hunter. Like there's lots of hunting practices that we actually looked into the rules and like a lot of what old time hunters may be doing might be super illegal or at least immoral. Uh, we encountered some bear hunters that shot a bear. They had it in the back of the truck and they were stuck. So we pulled them out of the mud with my truck and we're like, what are you doing with the bear? Or something about that's a nice bear. You know, they make really good hams. You can take it. And they're like, oh, we don't want to eat it. We just want the hide. We're like, well, why didn't you skin yeah. it? And they're like, we don't have knives. And so <laughs> Kevin's like, they're like, oh, we really want to thank you for pulling us out of the mud. And, and I'm like, no problem. They're like, what can we give you? And they're, they got their wallets out. They're new hunters, young guys. And uh, I'm like, I take your bear. And they're like, what? And then Kevin's like, no, really, he skins for a living. He can just, they're like, we don't want to skin it. We don't want to touch it. It's icky, but we wanted to shoot it. And I'm like, I, I feel for you, Bella, fellas. I feel for you. But I've got some sharp knives. And in about 10 minutes, I'll have you up and out of here and I'll take that bear carcass. So we took the carcass and they, they left the tag on the hide. Where we, Kevin's like in the passenger seat of the truck going through the regulations, trying to make sure that this is legal. I'm like, what if we do if we get stopped by the fish police and we've got a skin out bear carcass, but no tag? I'm like, well, then we would tag it, I guess. Because if you don't know, uh, the fish, the hunting and fishing regulations say that a bear carcass has no value. And there's no mandate requirement uh, on the on the part of the hunter who shoots a bear to harvest in the, Alberta. In Alberta, to harvest the in Alberta, yeah. So you don't have yeah. to harvest a carcass. A couple appalling scenes when you drive up, you know, down an oil east road or go on a walk and you see a skinned out bear, like just the carcass of a bear, all dried out. It is it's off putting. So we took these guys bear, and that was their fee for us. I mean, not it, there's no fee for service. Let's not, let's make that clear, but they were just going to throw the bear carcass out once they got it home and someone skinned it for them. And so we skinned it for them and took their bear. And it was kind of a good, that was like a weird food collection. Like, and then we picked some berries and had a good day. And you're like, yeah, but how big was the head on that bear? How, like I have hunting buddies still. Hey Jeff, Jeff, did you shoot that <laughs> yeah, bear? Did you measure? No, you didn't even didn't have, have to, to shoot, shoot it. it. It was actually a byproduct of some, <laughs> of some jackassery. Like it was a byproduct of just <laughs> jackass trophy hunters. And I'm like, well, whatever. Uh, I'm a, what was the years, bro? on that thing how many teeth did it have how big how tough are you now and i'm like i'm not tough at all but i got a bear <laughs> i needed a logging <laughs> chain to get that bear what i'm like yeah it's kind of next level uh, stuff 
when you're harvesting bears with a logging chain. Yeah. That's those, my story. New types of hunting skills. Uh, yeah. That's uh, is, is, is uh, negotiating and <laughs> negotiating a trade. Yeah. Being part of the community can go deeper than uh, just posting pics of your great big rack. Like it can be, we helped some people out and made them think maybe we should be eating bears. Like, I don't know if they, if they ever had that conversation in the truck and the drive home, but. Yeah. Well, they probably uh, got out somewhere and then somebody gave them some piece of smoked ham or whatever. And they're like, damn. It's like, he scammed us. This is <laughs> <Yeah>. good. <laughs> so you just so kind of caught to that. Hole. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> right. We'll just set a trap yeah, for hunters. <laughs> that's the next series. Actually, you, you, Curtis, you guessed it. The next series Trapping is Kevin hunters. and I just set, we just trap hunters and then take something that they're willing to throw away for free, like money. <laughs> <laughs> I, got this, I got this chain here. I can pull you yeah. out, but that's going to you know, cost boys, you a hind quarter. Yeah. Yeah. You know, boys, you, you do a lot better hunting. If I just sold you this camo shirt. <laughs> uh, we don't have any sponsors. This is why we don't have sponsors. I think Kevin realized early on that what sponsor would want from the wild when Jeff Singer is talking. <laughs> Kevin, you were going to jump in with something. Uh, only just to, to, to comment on kind of the changing of minds and in the culinary space and in the hunting space, uh, about your bear ham joke is, is well received because we have, we, ha I hate to talk about bears so much, but we have really changed people's, um, you know, a, a certain, whoever's watching, uh, changed a lot of people's minds about what, um, the culture of hunting could look like what wild food and hunting, what the culinary outcomes could be. And I guess that's kind of principally, again, what the show is about is trying to get people to, to, to critical think about it. It really isn't even about you should make this drink or you should make this recipe like this. Uh, it's very non-prescriptive. It's just, here's what we're doing and here's what, how we're exploring this space. Um, and hopefully that inspires some folks. And I can tell you from, you know, from people who, getting in touch with us that it, it does do that. So that, that, that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you guys do that I love, that's, that's gotta be a huge inspiration to people and maybe just kind of tell us what it means to you, but your presentation and your meals, like, like you're going beyond just like, like calories on a plate. Like, I mean, you're like Jeff said earlier, like, those food dishes are, they're paintings, they're works of art. Like your, your presentation uh, on stuff is just absolutely amazing. And, and it, does that mean something to you? Like other than just sort of like, you know, aesthetics, is there something deeper in having to go that distance and like, like this looks beautiful as well as tastes beautiful. Like, is there, is that important to you? I could step in and I would say that when someone important to you dies, you can put them in a pine box and dig a hole and throw that box in the ground. Or you can put them in a polished box and throw some flowers on it, can't you? <laughs> I see where so you're like, going. Yes, Where you are your can. values, bro? Like, hey, open up some wieners. Yeah. wieners and I just shot that elk there. It's hanging there. And I uh, got their measuring. The first thing I did is took the measuring tape out. And then I opened some wieners and beans and ate some itchy bad noodles for 10 cents from another country. That's like poison. Well, I don't know. Like there's an elk right there. And then can you make it beautiful? 
And shouldn't you? Because it's something that what you just saw living in you. Like there are a lot of those, there's, there's weepy moments in a lot of the mainstream hunting films too. Like, I just love this elk. I just, uh, I'm so beautiful. It just really takes you back. And then uh, they get it made into cheese smokies or that's the end, like end scene, end of show. That's it. Well, what did you show that it was like, how did you show that it meant something to you? And we, so we had to get over a bit of like, sort of the, or I had to get over sort of the feminine art of decorating a plate. It's a, it is a floral arrangement when, at the, the time we're done, but there's something like really healing and almost uh, ceremonial about, and then we compete. There's also a male asshole com- competition thing going on. Like, can we make it even more ridiculously beautiful with layers of color and, and, and then all like color flavor and, and cleverness. So we're having a little, we're having our little battle, not about who's who's got the best picks on their pool for the sports teams. Is we're saying like, how can we better honor this animal, and in what ways can we uh, present it to each other? Because we eat those things at the at camp. Like we make enough plates for everybody. Uh, we make a show plate, and then and then the elements are all in in all of the plates. So we say, I want to blow Kevin's mind uh, in a way that like. I need to one up him on the plate that he just did because it was a really clever use of a braised rabbit. And so then I'm going to make something that looks like street food. Uh, I did a doner on a crepe. Um, what was the meat? I don't know. It was like a rabbit. It was grouse. It was a grouse wrapped in a crepe that I cooked over the fire. So like they're just levels of difficulty and you just keep adding layers to try and get something that's like a food that you grew up with or something that you saw on a ridiculous uh, uh, social media feed made with Cisco ingredients, ingredients from the commercial food industry. And can you replicate that? And we can, not only can you replicate it, but when you start understanding your taste buds and uh, the, the things that you like and the texture that you like, you can include those things and build and just layer up a dish that's not just mushy wieners and beans or pizza pops or like the conventional, this is what I bring. My dad, I would look forward to hunting trips with my dad because you'd get all the Halloween candy you could eat. And like pizza pops and Mr. Noodles, like nonstop. And mom would be like, you're going to have problems in the bathroom the way that you eat, son. And and she was right. Eating at camp with dad wasn't great. (laughs) And it's not all just like grind it or make them into cheese. I I have a funny story about the slaughterhouse and uh, sort of the redneck customer comes in and says, like, and we take the, I made, I spent hours and hours building this perfect little cut instruction sheet for how do you want your cow or pig cut? And Kevin was filming one day. So this is a, this is an inside story from, from Kevin and I early on, he's filming at the meat shop and I'm like, I fucking, or I, I silly and hate these silly guys that silly come in and they, uh, they like make T-bones. They're like, I want the T-bones an inch and an inch and a half thick and the rest into cheese smokies. And you're like, what about... <laughs> Like there's more to the beef. There's like hundreds of muscle groups and my little cut instruction has hundreds of options. And, and like, you just take a blank piece of paper and write T-bones and Smokies. And I'm like, that's 700 pounds of Smokies, sir. Are you sure you want 700 pounds of Smokies? So I'm, I'm like complaining to Kevin about these silly customers and their silly ways. And then Kevin's like filming a customer interaction. This guy comes to the counter and sure enough, the, our, our front front of the house uh, worker says, how, you know, what, how, what do you want done with the chuck? And he's like, Chuck, hip. <laughs> said, I want my T bones, and I, I want to make the rest into cheese smokies. And I'm like, my god. <laughs> and the more that the smokies tasted like the grocery store, the better a job we had done as like amazing uh, sausage makers. And that makes me sad too. Like, what'd you put in that that sausage? And I'm like, spices. And they're like, well, we don't really, we're, we don't like your kind here. You know, <laughs> we're not into eating sausage that has things like flavor. 
We're used to just a commodified, <laughs> a commodified homogenized sausage is sort of what people are after. So Kevin was an outlet for me kind of learning our learning about our food culture by absolutely diving into the deep end head first, uh, learning about food culture, learning about commodified food, learning about commodified meat, and then doing something different, this small scale local abattoir business. It's absolutely handcrafted. And then trying to build something that I wanted that was beautiful and handcrafty. When, when, when the, the people in the community really just wanted cheese smokies like from Costco. And, and then over the 11 year evolution, it's, it's like, but there's, there's no easy button to just sort of make people, you know, care about the terroir of their food, where it comes from or how it's prepared or what's in it. But um, by sort of getting on my soapbox as often as I can, at least in our, our own little community of friends, everybody's sort of on this on the same page because we've explored and we've connected with people that are of a similar mind, but in not necessarily in the same field, like in, in meat, wild food, and then distillation and, and winemaking are, are good quick examples. And then the, the chefs that we've hung out with, like in, in the city and uh, bakers and and uh, like high cuisine chefs, and then also fast food chefs and, and all of those sort of combinations and and dis- discussions that we've, we've built a community on by, by not um, seconding, I guess, our co- or compromising our values around food to fit the narrative of say mainstream wild food, mainstream hunting uh, in order to keep sponsors happy. So I think that we really owe a lot, or that, that, I mean, it's, it's Kevin's production, I, uh, but, but watching the evolution kind of as a participant and third party observer, what Kevin's done with Kevin's production and Kevin's creative uh, uh, decision-making around how it's edited and what, what we film and, and, and what, or what he films and then how he edits it, um, by not selling out. I think that, that we owe a lot to that distribution network that gave him a contract that said that none of these things can be, you can't do anything that's originally unique or contains your own values. Just make it like other hunting shows. And so Kevin just, it was awesome that it was so, it's so, such a crappy contract because Kevin we both recoiled and were repulsed by that. And then I think that that's kind of helped set in motion the resolve to, to be even more insistent that we, we film and show things the, exactly the way that, that Kevin's mind wants to show them. And then I go on these rants with Kevin all the time as, and, and he can edit whatever he wants. And he leaves in some of my passionate stuff or a lot of it. He, and like kind of rests to him and risks to me too. And those are decisions that you have to make too it, in your speaking engagements for yourselves. And then also with your guests, they may say things that aren't exactly aligned with what the, the, the media needs to hear. Small podcasts like this don't matter. But I think that if you got, if, if you got called to the big leagues, there'd be a lot of editing going on in everything that I say, for example. That's yeah, a lot not- to say about presentation. To back that to back that bit up a bit, I think for me, I get exposed a lot in my world to kind of the high end culinary world of like Michelin level chefism and stuff. Um, and so it's fun and neat and creative, and also I would say not rocket science to take neat ingredients that are meaningful um, and beautiful and fresh and cook them in a simple way and plate them in a way that. Um, that you would be proud of, I guess, whatever that means to you. And I would say everybody that we have on the series has a bit of a different uh, voice in that respect as to how they might want to plate a dish. So it isn't so much, I mean, we, there's no tweezers in the show and we're not, it's not chefy in that sense. Um, 
but yeah, we pay attention to how things get plated. And and in the last couple few years, that's meant that we raid the thrift store for silver and plate on wood and rocks and and use crystal in our glassware in camp instead of, you know, uh, branded co- insulated coffee mug. But that's and that's just personal choice. It really is kind of almost a personal style than anything. And um, I guess speaks to the importance in my mind that we're uh, again, that idea of exploring the the potential of these things. What what could you do to make a, a deer neck something that would someone would pay 60 bucks for at a at a restaurant? Because we can do that. Um, and I'm just as happy to eat that deer neck in a beautiful sausage that Jeff made. That's I'm totally fine with that. It's not about being pretentious or trying to make. Uh, wild food or hunted food into something that is not, uh, but it is trying to take that those dishes into uh, territory that they aren't normally found, um, at least in the hands of hunters. I think that's the point. If you give a beautiful piece of venison, I've eaten venison cooked in cider in a Michelin star gastropub in London uh, for work. And, um, and then thought, why the hell don't I make this at home? Because I can make <laughs> this at home, uh, and plate it, you know, a bit differently than I might, if I was plating it for myself, you know, for dinner tonight, uh, and take a little bit more effort, but that, uh, in, in the crux of shooting, uh, a, a show that's focused entirely on that, uh, we take the time because that's what we're there to do to make it, uh, to kind of think, and then what we talk about that a lot. It's like, yeah, and then what? And it's not about adding elements to a dish necessarily and making it overcomplicated, but it's it's about asking the questions of like, yeah, but okay, so you like the like the gimlet example earlier. Okay, yeah, it's got this awkward note in it. That's too bad because this is really cool. So what could we do to then take it to another another level or to fix that so that next time we've kind of got a a solve to that? And so we're kind of constantly thinking about those things too. So. Um, so yeah, I don't know. That's a lot to say about presentation and plating, but, uh, ultimately it, it is trying to, I guess, just do the best job we can. And we're working with a lot of people with a lot of good skills. So, um, they bring a pretty, pretty top end game to the show and we're lucky to, to have them. Yeah, that's, that's, that's cool. I mean, I love even the stuff on social media, right? Like, you know, the high end chef stuff, it's like just artistically, I look at that and I'm always looking for ideas to express that with like my wild game dishes so that it has, it has meaning, right? Like not just replicating something. So it's like, oh, that could be like beef, but no, it's like, what, what are the concepts that I could use to present that for, you know, for my family or whatever that, you know, that I'm preparing that for that actually has meaning in the context that this was, you know, was a deer or an elk or a moose yeah. or something and like if that. You're I'm, on I'm that thinking journey, at that level, right? If you're on that journey, that's where plants become a big piece of the puzzle. Because if you can, if you can serve a roughed grouse, with a salad made from the contents of its crop because it's clover and it's all edible things and rose hips and all that, like that is heavy. Yeah, not, you know, like, <laughs> no, not out of its crop. You just look at its crop and then you go and collect those clean, fresh, non-barf or covered. Or out of its crop. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe working on that one. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the, those, those colors should inspire you. The nature of those plants should inspire you. The fact that that species eats those things should be just a real clue. Uh, there's kind of a fundamental culinary uh, cliche of uh, if it grows together, it goes together. Um, so folding those things together um, makes sense. This winter for, or this this year for us, a couple of things in season seven that really like knocked it out of the park. And they were actually in the same episode, I think. 
is we were cooking, um, we cooked white fronted goose and made a kind of a mushy yellow pea mash. But those peas were harvested from the exact location where our blinds were that the combine had missed. And some of those peas had sprouted and had gone all the way to potting. So we had flowers and tendrils and shoots and mushy peas. And so it was kind of like a green salad with with a soft, creamy yellow pea dish with white breasted, white uh, fronted goose breast. And it was like just it was ridiculous that how connected those things were they were actually the it was actually the bird and the plants it was eating while we were plants on an evening shoot yeah, and these are plants that we eat yeah on and on sorry to interrupt but i feel passionate that's no, okay this was we set up our blinds for an evening shoot in a pea field and while we're waiting for the sun to go down and the geese to start flying off the lake I was just sitting with my legs spread on the ground, looking in the powdered dirt of Southern Alberta. And there are all these spilt peas. And I'm like, well, this is what the animals are flying here to eat. And then we talked about it and like, well, we could eat these peas. And I'm like, yeah, this is what we would buy um, uh, to powder to for anyway, for all kinds of dishes. So we're eating these yellow peas in the field and then we're eating the, the green pea pods that are fresh and delicious. And this was October, but in Southern Alberta, they, they sprouted. Um, so, so, yeah, we're just, we're, I think a lot of our foraging is just like while we're killing time in camp or while, like, like just let's go and collect something because it's the time of day that uh, wild game aren't out. Like, so the bears are sleeping in the middle, middle of the day. So we're going to wait for an evening hunt and we're just wandering around looking like, uh, there, and then there have been other weird discoveries like, like firewood, the flavors of smoke from fire, from firewood. Kevin's concept, the firewood library which is a, like a mind silly. It's a completely, it's going to silly your mind right up. And uh, so that you can get flavors out of the wood. Like, so those are the, the components can be the plants themselves or the way that you treat them. And then the, the one that I was going to say, the inanimate object that we harvested was ice under a, under a bridge over a Creek. It's, and it's May. And, but there's still three feet of ice, crystal clear ice that had been there all winter. And like, can we, Oh yeah. And what Kevin just said, he edited uh, episode two of season seven and, uh, we're just sitting around camp and, and John is sighting in his bow and we got this big block of ice that we collected from under the bridge. And uh, we're going to put these, these, we want a cube of ice uh, essentially into a glass to make some martinis and just have some, <laughs> some camp crantinis before or whatever. And so, and John is shooting his bow. I'm like, John, 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 you should shoot that ice. Like we have a camera and it films in slow-mo and there's some ice and there's a man with a bow and John got weird, uh, got affected in a weird way by the series and just he's a weird guy to begin with. And he made his own arrowheads out of like pieces from his tractor, like the the blades from some machine, a herring machine or a, something. So he's and got in that episode. We were foraging the shafts, the rose shafts that he was turning into arrows as well. So it was kind of like a that crossover between food and function and not just looking at the forest as a place of food, but looking at it as a place of util from the perspective of utility as well so yeah and a full that circle is pretty great yeah it's, uh, yeah like just kevin was talking about that before you guys logged in but uh so so yeah so we set up the cameras and john shoot we just need to smash this ice with something but like a an axe is a bit too big and a knife is a bit too dangerous and a rock is a bit too dirty so like give me your arrow i'm gonna stab this ice with your arrow that's perfect and he's like why don't or whatever <laughs> we're like let's just shoot it and then kevin's like let me film that so he films this, this arrow whizzing off the side and glancing off the side of the ice and breaking off a piece of ice for our, 
or a little crantini. And it, so it seems like pretty minimal, but like as a, or it's a small part of a bigger story, but metaphorically you start weaving these, these really weird metaphors into your daily camp activities. And now you have resources all over the place. that doesn't involve a single $500 plastic cooler because the nature is your ice. If you know where to look and, and the fresh mint is something that you, I, I was just thinking about all oh, mint when mint is in season in the right spot of like a damp forest, when you collect wild mint in Alberta, it's one of the greatest flavors that there is. Almost as shocking as the lemony, the, the flavor of Sprite, like lemon lime that comes out of uh, lodgepole pine, like fresh needles, north facing in a clearing. So you know those flavors because you should, because you're from Alberta. And and what a tragedy it is that we don't, like you can barely name the birds that, that are flying, like common birds that fly around your yard. Uh, but there's this whole encyclopedia of stuff to know about how the natural world works. And that's just in one ecoregion, like Aspen Parkland. So it's kind of a fun lifelong endeavor uh, when you're bored of your, th- your three uh, mammal species that you hunt, you know, like deer, deer, <laughs> elk, moose. Um, there's, there's only so many, <laughs> but when you get into plants and, and other useful materials, useful things in, in nature, um, then you're, you're like Kevin Costa when you build a food library, uh, sorry, a, a, a wood library for cooking and smoking. They all have different aspects yeah. and they have different, um, qualities and attributes that cook hotter, cook faster. And then the smokes are completely different. If you've spent a lot of time in camp, you know, that, uh, spruce smoke is not poplar smoke is not birch smoke. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Just like all the mesquites and hickories and all that, you know, and the cherries, you know, or the common stuff that you buy, you know, for your little, little smoker at home. For your home egg that, in the backyard. Uh, yeah. yeah or, I, I was marketed yeah, that. Yeah, natural stuff. I was marketed that entirely. Uh, like, so, you know, I'm a meat shop guy and I'm like, well, I have to learn how to smoke jerky. And I'm playing with all these bagged chips of wood from the Southern States. And then I thought, give your head a shake. What are you doing? So the one of the best pairings, actually, just as a little side, little tip from the pros is um, cooking over uh, like red willow, uh, smoking moose jerky over red willow is is uncannily a, a great pairing. I don't know why. Um, the, the red willow when burning, and if you make a smudge out of red willow, it smells awfully medicinal, like tobacco and camphor or like something like Vicks and... It's really medicinal, but, but when you smoke moose and almost no other meat, does it work as well or it doesn't work as well with any other meat and almost, I wouldn't smoke anything else, but I smoked, it was the kids that still say to this day, like, when are you going to get a moose again and smoke it over red willow? Well, it's just coincident that, uh, touching on what Kevin said is that if it grows together, it goes together. So the moose is eating willow all the time on our property. And if you had to describe the flavor of the meat on a gamey moose, there are some elements of willow. If you've ever chewed willow bark. Um, and then you smoke, you smoke one over the other and you're like, my God, imagine the troves of information that the indigenous populations of North America knew about this exact eco region. And then it was just like shitty luck that they weren't a civilization that wrote things down. And then Europeans didn't really take them seriously to actually, um, you know, record things from their oral tradition when those tribes were first being discovered. Why didn't we write stuff down? Because they must've known a lot more. Well, I mean, must've they absolutely knew uh, like a magician's worth, a, a wizardry, uh, an encyclopedia of information about these ecoregions to make life better for themselves. Oh, abs- yeah, and absolutely. Yeah, I will confess, just, I have to chime in there that um, that it is weird being a 
a white middle-aged male um, (laughs) of European descent exploring wild foods. And I've had people um, nag me a bit about, you know, indigenous representation on the show, that kind of thing. And I've said that many times, and I'll say it today, that um, that is their story for sure to tell. And, and, And everybody that we've had on is really just doing it from a very personal space of, of kind of be going in, uh, going into the space, uh, like a child, like we just don't know what mm. the flavors are here. We don't know what, what pairs well together, but I've had a few epiphanies. I would say one of them for me, I learned that nodding onion or a wild onion species that is off the coast of BC and we have it in Alberta too, um, is the, is a sublime pesto on a salmon it's like one of the best food things I've ever had in my life. And you sure as hell know that the people that lived off of all the plants and species around that shoreline knew that. Yeah. And so they they were exposed to some of the most beautiful flavors and and anyone that knows that how good a fresh fruit can be would know that they they knew those flavors of what a wild strawberry tasted like and those kinds of things. So to to suggest or think that um, it was like survival food, a culture back in the day. I think uh, uh, that's what I thought. I mean, that's what I was, that's the bill of goods I was sold as someone who grew up here. And that, that has been shattered that little perspective of, oh, well, that's what, that's what's out here. That's what's out in the bush. That's what's out in the land. That's what's in the ocean is very uh, basic, mundane, survival type of, of peasant food. Uh, BS, absolutely zero to that. That is not the case at all. It actually is where all the interesting stuff lies. And I've thought a lot about that because my, my, my career started in, in agriculture and it's really drifted hard into the world of wild food. And I've been kind of mindful lately on like, is that what I want for my career? And landed kind of squarely and yep, because culinarily, like if you're interested in food, um, yeah, we can talk about chickens all, all day forever. And that'll be like one thing. Or you can step into a forest and have, or or the ocean, and have just a dizzying array, a lifetime of learning uh, about different species and the connection of those species, uh, both, I guess, uh, in the ecosystem, but on a plate and from the food perspective and, and beverage perspective. And it's it's kind of a bottomless pit. And um, when we released season six, I think I'd I'd pulled some quotes. Um, and I'm going to get them wrong, so I'll paraphrase it. But it's essentially uh, making the point that uh, most of the the food available in a in a large box store or grocery store would be like twelve spe- twelve species of plants and animals or something like that. Or a certain the majority of it is is those few species, and that there's I forget what it is, but it's something like two and a half million. I'll get it wrong, but there's just a a, a vast array of of biodiversity on this planet of different species and animals. Um, that we're just not paying attention to. We're paying attention to, um, and especially what drives me nuts is the kind of the the Instagrammy foodie um, kind of space uh, being obsessively interested in in like you said, Jeff, the kind of um, especially when it's not the local food movement and you're getting kind of this big agriculture feeding into these pretty plates and people taking Instagram pictures and that's their and that's their understanding of food and they can talk about. Uh, a particular dish, a piece of charcuterie or something, uh, you know, ad nauseum uh, forever, yet they know absolutely nothing. When you take, when you hold their hand and you take them out into nature where they live, like actually the same ecosystem they live in, they don't know anything about it. So that's, um, that's both been frustrating and rewarding, holding the hand holding and holding people's hands literally 
um, and because I guide foraging walks and I take people uh, on that level too, but also on on film. Uh, it's been really interesting to see how how those light bulbs go on and kind of to what degree it changes people's thought process. So, you know, you, you, you then overlap the, the hunter and they can have the exact same lack of knowledge of the ecosystem. They could be kind of no better than the person buying the pork chop from the box store. And I hate to say that, but, and I'm certainly not implying all hunters, but there's certainly some people out there that are singularly focused with the species that they chase Yep. Like it seems to be a thing that that lots of hunters just kind of maybe because it's hard and you get good at something and you want to pursue it. I'm not judging. I'm just saying that there's lots of people that engage with the outdoors that like like Jeff said, they might know three big game meats, which are all red meats, and they get them processed into sausage. I know this because this is my family. Like this is what people do. You go shoot your moose and your elk and your deer and you bring it to someone like Jeff and you get them to make pepperoni and sausage and ground beef and beef and smokies and stuff. And that's your understanding of of that. Uh, as as a food and you're not picking mushrooms and you're not shooting the small game and you're not definitely not eating a beaver or whatever um so so yeah there's just kind of uh i i would say that the even the hunters out there need to um need to kind of open their mind and and i say that as a guy who in season two or three of this series opened his mind like we didn't know either until we figured it out and the unlock was um actually obsessively elk hunting and then realizing we just said no to stopping to pick 40 pounds of mushrooms like what are we doing let's just stop to pick the mushrooms and we left that trip with like what was it jeff like three white tails and two black bears and and like a bunch of grouse and 40 pounds of mushrooms it's just like why do we why were we even chasing an elk we, we didn't we weren't even on to them at all so instead we stopped and harvested what nature had to offer and really from that day forward Every time we're in the field, our spring bear hunt is not a spring bear hunt. I call it spring camp, spring bush camp. Again, like we talked about, there's probably 12 to 20 species that we'll be looking for or looking at. And uh, and I would say that almost every hunt is like that, every chase. It's not a hunt for a species, our fall hunt. What, what do we hunt, Jeff? We hunt stuff, uh, grouse, white, you know, like rough grouse, spruce grouse, white-tailed deer, black bears, all the greens and mushrooms, whatever, whatever's there. Slippery jacks are just as cool. Uh, the other year we picked um, Sulis tomentosis, which is a really cool fungus. It's in, it's a bolete and it stains blue and it's really neat. And it has a really cool Harry Potter like name. And uh, that was like more of the trophy than the big game animal that we shot. <laughs> so anyway, the, the, the point being is, is the broadening of the, the lens to, not singular species, uh, engagement, uh, sure you'll be ready for that, but we are generally, uh, holding all the tags and ready to harvest any of the things that mother nature has on offer. And that, that's just so ancient. Like that's how ancient cultures, I believe probably would have approached it. Right. It was, it was get what you get when it's there and, you know, an element of opportun opportunistic you know, sort of harvesting and, you know, knowing the seasons and knowing the places to go, you could probably target specific things, but it's like, yeah, you probably wouldn't pass up those mushrooms to go look for something that might not be over there and then go, Oh, we better go back and oh, something ate them all while we were, we were there. Right. Like, it's like, I think people would have just grabbed stuff when, when it was there. And that that's kind of neat. I think that you conduct yourselves that way because that, I think that increases your connection out there because it's a little bit more 
fundamental, more ancient kind of human nature relationship and just well, and also grabbing it while you're there. Speaking maybe to the new hunter um, also, and I've, I've had conversations being as I get older, everyone else, I'm not getting older, everyone's just getting younger. Uh, but young people going out and uh, having experiences hunting and have conversations remotely or or through instant or direct messages and things and um, that if you approach uh, your interactions with nature and hunting uh, in a more in this more sort of holistic way with your eyes open, your head on the swivel for what's out there. Um, we in from the wild, Kevin and I don't have a bad hunt. Uh, we don't have a bad trip because we always har- we always harvest something. Uh, wh- whereas you talk to someone who's sort of myopic and got the the blinders on, I'm like, I'm gonna get uh, a trophy. I've used the same voice for all new hunters and <laughs> and people that come to the meat shop. But I'm gonna get it's Yosemite Sam with foghorn leghorn, that kind of voice with a bit of a grumble. And uh, they are gonna get them uh, themselves a great big uh, buck. And then you're like, how did your trip go? I got my buck, but it was one inch smaller than last year's buck. So it was a shitty trip. And, or I didn't get a buck. So it was a shitty trip. And then it's like, well, what was, didn't see anything. Didn't see anything. It was just shit. What an, what an effing waste of of time. And I, four days and I only have so many holidays and what a waste. And uh, we're like, Hey, did you know it was a banner year for uh, oyster mushrooms? Did you, (laughs) <laughs> they're like, never talk to me, you know, so we lose some friends, you know, but uh, we have good trips because we'll talk about camaraderie or it's it's raining and maybe the, the deer or the bear, whatever your species that you're kind of hoping for, you have a tag for. Well, they're not out. It's raining. It's kind of shitty. It's windy. But when it's windy, the mushrooms are growing. And then the morning after the dandelions are all coming up in the spring or uh, it kind of washes all the buds off the uh, rose, the, the flowers off the rose bushes. So we're going to we're going to include. Hey, Kevin, I we didn't shoot a bear, but I got this beaver when I went for a walk and I have these rose petals that were prime, prime morning, fresh dewdrop rose petals. And uh, so let's see if we can do something with that so we can have a really, really fun time and really un- unlock our. Our, like our creativity to try and make what would be seen superficially as not a great trip into a great trip. And then also the thing that we harvest is camaraderie and memories, I think are way more important than bears or mushrooms that you're, I think making tea, <clears throat> the story and the simple haikus that present themselves to you, like the poetry that present themselves to you um, when it's not just how big, how fast and how loud a two stroke um, I can run you know, <laughs> uh, in camp and wake everybody up. Like, like you could just sort of have a peaceful, quiet time and you're harvesting those peaceful, mm-hmm. quiet times with friends as well. These memories to yeah. capture for your photo album. Um, not necessarily for not doing it for the Instagram, but, uh, for your kids to look at or your grandkids to look at when, uh, when you're not around, I think that's more important or yeah. as important to, as the, the food outcomes, the story outcomes. Absolutely. For me. Absolutely. I mean, that's a great, great philosophy to approach hunting like it's like a harvesting trip right so what what advice do you have like people you know i think so many people are interested in this in this broader aspect of like harvesting and interacting you know with the wild and getting foods from that when it comes to when it comes to the plant side of things um like what advice do you have that's just from your own experience like to start out like you know, cause obviously there's people going to be like, the main thing is going to be, well, what happens if I pick something and it's like poisonous or it doesn't taste good? Like it's just what, if somebody just wants to jump into this and they don't have 
the expert, you know, with them to point all this stuff out. What advice do you have? How, how did okay. you get to where you are? Well, um, those are two, two different questions. I'm going to skip <laughs> to the advice part. Um, what we, what we'll say often on TV when we need to be covering our butts is, uh, take out the guidebooks and, um, and find a local expert in your community. That's very self-serving because in this community, I'm one of those people, but <laughs> I don't, I don't need to work more in, in the foraging space. Like I'm not, I'll be happy when that, when people are good and they don't need me to take them out. But, um, having somebody to show you, uh, okay, Hericium coralloides, Combs tooth mushroom, there's nothing poisonous that looks like that. So if you see that and it's really easy to, to identify that one, go start with that one. Start with what we call when from the wild, the easy wins, I was gonna say. easy wins and fruit and mushrooms and all the things and start with the easy ones. Learn one and then, thing. And then, and then, yeah. And then learn a couple more every year. And it's not like, oh, I want to learn them all this year. Well, that's stupid. No, don't. Become very good at like a, a small select handful and then just keep adding to your knowledge base. And over a period of time, you'll end up with a very large knowledge base. That's it. That's my advice. Uh, that's largely how I learned also. I did not. I grew up with uh, shaggy manes, a high bush cranberry, and moose. That was the berry, the mushroom, and the big game animal. And you'd say, well, the primary ones you ate, and I would say almost exclusively the only ones of each of those classes that I that we ate. So I came from a very narrow, use the word myopic, um, kind of space, so I understand it. But uh, you'll find that the plant and especially the plant side isn't as scary as you might think when you start to know it. There's not as many things out there that are out to get you and, and harm you as you might think. There's there's way more species that are completely useful uh, for food or utility or medicine uh, than there are things that you need to be watching out for because it'll cause you harm. Mm. Um, and there's lots of things that we do on the day to day that causes harm with what we put in our bodies uh, that, that we need to kind of maybe open our eyes more to the stuff that we eat all the time that could harm us and worry a little bit less about the stuff that's in our natural ecosystems that probably isn't going to harm us, but, but me mindful of it. So anyway, that's, that's my spiel on that. I would say, I love that. That's great. Uh, go to a place where they don't spray. So be cognizant of spray because <laughs> man-made spray chemicals are what will hurt you on wild food, but most plants you can eat or try, and they're not going to kill you unless you eat a whole bale of them. Um, so if it's not a non-spray area and a lot of weird oil pipelines and leases and cut blocks and are sprayed, uh, they are yeah. sometimes signed and sometimes not assigned. But if you're kind of in like, a, an untouched forest, you can try a lot of things. But, but I also just wanted to add to what Kevin said is like, can you learn dandelions? Yes, you can. And then, well, that's only one. So I'm not, my high score isn't very high. Um, but you can eat dandelions in the spring and you could, and it's a different plant in the summer and it's a different plant in the fall and you can eat their leaves and their roots and their flowers and their stems and their milk. And then you can dry them. You can smoke them. You can eat them fresh. You can eat them in tea. You can eat like, so in every prep, like uh, Kevin uh, also is thinking, he said, I have these three species and, and we talked about like, well, what about preparation styles growing up? Grilling, grilling and grilling, you know, like. <laughs> Yeah. Now learn one thing about food. Like if you learn dandelions and you learn um, uh, braise, just Google it. I don't have to be any expert, just braise. What's that? 
It's just cooking in a liquid. That's it. So you can, like most people grow up in households in North America, they might know microwaving, pan frying, and like, does anyone bake really? But if you knew that are grilling, so grilling, pan frying, microwaving, that's probably like 90, 90% of the cooking done in houses around Alberta is probably uh, uh, those three. But if you learn braise, which is really seems boring and you, but you like hunting, you can braise any rangy, <laughs> gross, you can, a 17 year old squirrel can die. You can fall out of his wheelchair into a braising pot and you can braise that sucker and he'll be, you shred him up, pull out his bones He's got no teeth to worry about and put that on a sandwich with a little bit of fat, a little bit of acid, a little bit of sweet. And like a, a geriatric squirrel is an edible thing. And I think that's the biggest difficulty in wild game and the biggest mistake that a lot of hunters make, probably why they turn to cheese smokies uh, or, or like just grind it. What do deer taste like, uh, dad? It tastes like pepperoni. <laughs> like <that's, laughs> but but their shoulders are different from their necks are different from their tenderloins are different from their like. So I, I just like the plant has many parts. The animal has many parts, too. So if you're using the wrong cooking preparation on the wrong part of or age of or, or, or gender or species of the animal, um, then you're going to it's not going to be enjoyable at all. There are some bull moose that are just ground up tires, like, and you should probably just grind the whole, like grind most of it and maybe braise a couple of the soft, the, the softer muscle groups. But just like the dandelion, you can break the animal into different parts. And if you treat each muscle as a separate thing, you can get, and, and then uh, approach them with a cooking technique that is suitable to that muscle group. You can make the entire animal uh, as good as anything you've ever had at, at a restaurant prepared by a chef. But Dandelions and braise is the short end. Learn about dandelions because anyone can do that and learn about braising. And you'd have years worth of learning about just that one plant and that one cooking technique. Wow. I tell That's people awesome. one of the coolest, um, one of the coolest dandelion dishes I've ever had. Um, because I grew up with like a, a, a half French. And so my grandmother would make uh, dandelion salads. And as a kid, I wasn't fan because we get exposed to zero bitter things as a Canadian. And, <laughs> Um, but this dish I had once was a dandelion coffee ice cream. So you can roast dandelion root and then they made a coffee. So it was like a coffee-esque flavored ice cream with uh, the kind of nougat, I guess, like chunks of of uh, dandelion root that were candied and caramelized. So like crunchy on top. So it's kind of like this crunchy ice cream coffee flavored thing. That was made from dandelions and that really opened my mind to like, again, wow. the, how, how much we're ignoring, like Jeff said, the simple stuff, like the stuff we want to poison and kill like dandelions. Um, we're just not, we haven't even figured that out. And, and so uh, good point, Jeff, to start, start somewhere obvious and easy. And instead of trying to complicate things too hard, stick with some real fundamental basics and then build. That's you can amazing make wine advice. With dandelions too. Yeah, dandelion boozy. wine. I know people that make yeah. it with the blossoms. Yeah, yeah we did. We did yeah, that last Curtis, spring. Curtis did that. So cool. Uh, yeah. yeah. Wow, guys, this has been an amazing conversation. Yeah. Um, really. Just, I I love your passion. I love what you're doing. I love how you represent. You know, getting food from the outdoors. Your ethic. How you got this? Just this beautiful balance between like the wild plants and the wild animals. Like it's just, it's not one or the other. It's just this holistic sort of approach to connecting and appreciating everything that's out there and how it can, can feed you. It's just, it's beautiful. 
I really, really uh, appreciate you sharing everything that you have here on the show today. It's so within reach. Yeah. Thanks for caring about it's it. It's so within reach. Yeah. If it was within reach for us, it's just right there for anybody. Yep. Yeah. And, and I think you said it earlier, like even for people to live in the cities, it's sort of like, well, no, I'd have to drive, you know, way out to the, and sometimes it's like, no, you don't. It's just like, it's probably right, right there under, under your nose, even, even, uh, in a city or whatever. So, um, that great. is absolutely correct. Yeah. Cause I know you do some of your foraging walks, like right in Edmonton. And so it's like, Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. whether it doesn't matter, Vancouver, Toronto, wherever it's like, you're going to find these things. You're going to find dandelions. Yeah, that's for sure. In the, in the parking lot at Walmart. Yeah. <laughs> and you're picking up your cheese smokies. Yeah, to go that's to right. salad with your cheese smokies, for sure. <laughs> yeah, so at least you got some wild dandelions on them. So. That's right. But that's probably not a good place to do it because they might be spraying in the parking lot. So, yeah. But uh, guys, really appreciate yeah, everything that, was, that you've that shared fantastic. with us today. So um, that's cool. Thank you, guys. Well, thanks for having us. Cool. Um, couple things here, folks. So turkey season is open today, which is April 15th, the uh, launch date of this here digital program. Um, so if you want the confidence to know where those private land boundaries are, you're in luck. iHunter has got you covered. Regulations right on your phone, private public land boundaries. This really is a fantastic tool. Uh, when you're signing up for the public land subscription, use the code THC podcast for 20% off a one year subscription for the public land subscription. This code is available for the BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia apps. So they got a whole host of every Canadian app out there that they have. Uh, you can use THC podcast. So thanks to the folks at iHunter for supporting this episode. And another thanks down to the crew at Fisher Peak Brewing Company for being the sponsor of this episode. What better to pair your wild game dinner, finish a bike ride, or end a grueling pack out with a nice cold can of beer from Fisher Peak Brewing. They're one of those if you know you know type things if you've ever had them then you know there's really no other beer out there like i said earlier it tastes fresh they have beer for every occasion if you're sitting by the fire after dinner try the dark and stormy porter or maybe you're hanging out in the yard on a blazing hot summer's day give the seasonal ginger beer a try uh, thank you fisher peak brewing for sponsoring this episode Go grab some of their beer and let them know that you heard about them from us. Uh, you can also check them out on Instagram at Fisher Peak Brewing Co. We would also like to wish everyone good luck this turkey season. I'm going to pull it up, put out a little bit of a call to action this year. Take it upon yourself to tell the story of your turkey hunt. We've had a few conversations lately about the importance of telling the right story. So maybe use this turkey season to try it out. Don't just post a photo of your harvested turkey on social media. Turn it into a story. Maybe recap every day you're out this spring or make the quote-unquote trophy of the hunt something other than actually getting the bird. Whatever you choose, aim to tell the story that would connect with someone who doesn't know what turkey hunting is all about. Good luck out there, folks. 
That's awesome. Yep. Tell the story. And these are two master storytellers we had today on this episode. And you can see a good story has passion in it. Um, so if you guys want to uh, follow and learn more from Kevin and Jeff um, from the wild on uh, Vimeo On Demand, um, the series are on there uh, as well um, from the wild.ca. Uh, the website and from the wild on Instagram. And we will put those links in our show notes and support them by, by the films, watch what they're doing, learn, interact with them on social media. Um, I just can't say enough about, you know, how you kind of represent the good, wholesome aspects of hunting and, and wild food uh, from the Canadian landscape. So I think a lot of people are interested in that. So thanks for sharing your passion, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody. All right, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode.